Joey, Doctor Joey. What do you what do you what do you like when people call you, Doctor Joey, Doctor? Are you like uh, I think Doctor like Joey? You calling me whatever makes you happy? Yeah, Doctor Joey sounds good. I feel like I, I'm gonna call you Doctor <laughs> Joey. What's going on, man? Good morning. Good morning, man. Doing great. Um, I hope you find your keys after this podcast episode, dude. It's <laughs> it's rough, man. It, so I I just we were talking about it on air and like um off air and I I used that like spare key, the actual physical key, and I was like all excited because I was like, oh, I can. I don't have the fob, but I'll just like get in with the spare key. And, and I it took me like, I'm not going to lie. I didn't Google it. So I'm just like, oh, I'm sure on one of the handles of my car, there's like a key slot. Right. And so I'm like walking around the car and there's like no key slot on any of the handles. I'm like looking underneath it. I'm looking behind it. Like there's just nothing there. So I'm like, can I not even get in with this thing? Eventually I find you have to like pop something off and I, and I open it and I'm all excited and I open the car door and the alarm starts going off. And it went off for no joke, like 10 straight minutes in my little neighborhood, like 7.15 in the morning. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm standing there. I'm like, if I was getting carjacked, like they wouldn't have the actual key. Like, what is the point of this? Like, clearly I am the owner of the car with this key. I like couldn't understand it. Um, yeah, it's been a wild morning, but um, you, met, you, you, you told me to totally just, you, you gave me some great advice about like dismantling the whole front end of the car and getting it. So I'm, I'm going to yeah, try yeah. that. And if anyone asks, I'll, I'll send them over to you. Just rig it. Yeah. Well, I should just, I'll just hotwire it. It's fine. No problem. Just hot, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I was watching, uh, Jenna and I are, are watching, um, shameless where uh, I haven't seen the whole thing she's never seen it at all but like there's like one part we're watching right now with like some little kid just hot wires a car and i just like crack up because they like pull one thing they like pull out one little thing and then there's like two wires and they're like great they touch them and it just the car starts i'm like there's no way that's what hot start or uh hot wire your car is but whatever dude i'd be convinced i have no clue yeah i have no idea <laughs> either yeah which is a great segue, actually, to the conversation we're going to have about the carnivore diet. It's a like perfect segue. Yeah, um, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we're going to we're going to talk about the carnivore diet today. And I and I was thinking about I was thinking about this, and I was like, uh, I don't have a carnivore diet episode. And I was like, why don't I? Why haven't I done that already? Um, and I was like, well, you know, because carnivore diet's stupid. And I was like, because nobody would believe this. It's stupid. Like, who would believe not eat? You know, don't eat plants makes you healthier. Like that plants are killing you. That fiber is non essential. That LDL doesn't matter. Some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. But then I was like, you know what? That's not the right way to approach this. Like, just because like yeah. we can't just package it away because it sounds dumb. And we we could do that if it was something like um, like. Uh, like fruititarian or breathtarians. Have you ever heard of like breathtarians? People who like, think you can just get all mm -hmm. like the nutrients from, from just like breathing in the air. Like that we can yeah. throw away into the garbage immediately. I don't have an episode on breathtarians because it's dumb. But this is- How long are those people around for? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, well, luckily that what happens is they hit starvation mode and they start gaining fat. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're probably, you know, probably obese at this point. So- they're chronic under eaters. Uh, chronic under eaters. Joey, do not get my blood started this morning, man. BP's like two hundo right now. Um, so oh, yeah, carnivore diet is. I just want to start. Carnivore diet's not that. Like we have a, a an enough of a population where that people are like uh, not sure. You know, hear claims and they're like, is that true? Like it, it's fooling. And I'll use the word fooling because we're going to go down this route of like probably not the best idea for most people. Um, Sure. But there's enough of a population that I think we need to address it. I think you'd agree. I think that, I mean, I mean, I just, this morning woke up to like 40 comments from like, in, on one post of mine from basically carnivore zealots uh, about LDL or whatever. And so I'm like, you know what, there's, yeah. 
this is serious enough that we do need to address it. Do you do you find that that do you, do you share that sentiment? Do you feel like you're like, wow, I didn't realize we'd have to we'd have to go this deep on this? Yeah, well, I think the carnivore diet one is a, is a bit tricky for a, a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, there are sufficient people doing it and perhaps experiencing some benefits where it's it, we're not doing it justice if we're just like, oh, it's dumb, don't do it, right? Because again, and we'll discuss on this episode why some people may experience some benefits. And to that type of individual, if you're just like, hey, this is dumb and you don't explain why, um, they're just not going to trust you, right? And realistically, you have to put yourself in their shoes as well. If you're doing something that's working for you and you're finding some benefit and somebody tells you, hey, that's stupid, but you're experiencing some benefit, you're probably not going to trust that person unless they have some logical reasoning that makes sense as to why you're experiencing benefits and why you shouldn't be doing it in the first place, right? So, yeah, I agree. Um, I think on paper, the carnivore diet stuff just seems silly. But again, to the individual who does it and does experience some benefits, it's harder for that individual to understand why it seems silly if they don't have an, uh, a deeper understanding of nutritional science. Um, which again, I know we're going to talk about those different things related to fiber and why some people see benefits and all those things. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's, what's funny is if you look at the carnivore diet, we'll, we'll address in a second, but there's enough that there's enough good things that are happening when people do this. There's enough good things that people are changing that there's a large percentage. And I say large percentage, not in any way, the majority, but like not a large percentage, but a large in absolute, very vocal, very loud amount of people that are expressing, you know, anecdote that they feel better enough that I agree with you enough that I'm like, Hey, like, well, first and foremost, I'm happy for people who feel better. I think that our, exactly. argument, our argument will mostly be that this is not the best route for you to do that. Um, and and it's like, it's not that they're moving towards foods that are like, it's not that they're like on the trans fat diet where we're like, they're like moving towards a, an, an only, a diet of stuff that we know categorically to be bad for you, which is, yes, which actually yes, is like yes. a, a small, I mean, if you think of like, you know, there's no good and bad foods, like in it without context, uh, without dosage, sure. I think, outside of like trans fats, I think that you couldn't really even make it a diet that would fall under that sort of categorically sure. bad category. Um, cool, let's talk about, I wanna just lay the scene of what are some of the claims made by carnivore people. And we're gonna circle back to those in a second because I wanna talk about some of the claims just to whet the old appetite for the listener of what we're gonna get into. And then I wanna spend a little time on why there are people, why somebody might feel better on a carnivore diet. So I think the, you, I, I want you to add or subtract to this list. Um, the two main yeah. ones I want to talk about today is that the is that LDL isn't an issue in the context either LDL isn't an issue in cardio in terms of cardiovascular disease. It, it, I've heard let that be the end of the sentence. There is now people or there are now people saying, well, it's not an issue in the context of a zero carb, very very low carb diet, and we'll talk about kind of maybe the mechanisms by which they think that that is true. Um, I know Papa Lane just did a did a video on the that Oreo kind of N of one study, which kind of talks about this a little bit. Um, and then I wanna talk about fiber. I mean, a lot of people will say, well, fiber is non-essential. You, you, know, you don't need fiber, right? And so we'll talk about how fallacious that argument is. Um, we'll talk about this idea that plants are killing you, you know, that they have, you know, uh, certain, certain things in them that are attacking you in some way um, or causing or worsening autoimmune disease, anything else we wanna throw on the pile there. Yeah, well, I was going to say another one of the big reasons why the carnivore diet is so convincing or compelling to some individuals 
is the messaging behind the reason for the carnivore diet in the first place. Like, it seems like it's really popular nowadays for people to believe in conspiracies. And we won't go specifically into like what types of conspiracies, but there's this whole idea that like the reason why the science says that a carnivorous diet is not good is because all of science is bought off and anything that shows that fiber is helpful, that LDL is bad. It's just part of a larger conspiracy to keep people sick. And I'm oversimplifying it, but when you listen to prominent figures in the carnivore community talking about specific studies or specific things that happen in the government or the relationship between big food and government, it can just sound really compelling to the individual who doesn't know anything, right? They always bring up the whole like Ansel Keys thing and uh, like the, what's it called? The seven, seven country, country study seven. or whatever. And again, is that one example of perhaps not the best type of research? Sure. But they use that as an example as like, that's the only evidence showing that, you know, plant-based foods are good for you. And there's so much evidence to show the contrary, but we could, we could touch on that a little bit too, if you'd like. Yeah. Let, let's stay on that for a second. So I, I see, I totally see what you mean where there's like the, um, instead of actually using research to defend their argument and, and critique research that's been done, they there's an argument of throwing that research out by way of who funded that study and follow the money and this sort of like yes, very yes. anti-government, this very anti-establishment, very anti like big pharma, big pharma wants to keep you sick. And so they're in bed with the, with Kellogg who, you know, wants to, wants to neuter you. <laughs> and, and so there is, yeah. and, and it is funny. It is it, it, funny is the wrong word, but there is a, that is a very, um, I'm going to throw that to you. Why, why is that such, and when I say that, I mean this, this like anti-establishment, uh, and maybe we're, we, maybe this is us going a smidge off topic, but this sort of anti-establishment conspiracy theory, why are, why are people so hungry for that sort of, why is that so being so latched onto right now? Because I agree with you that there's, there's an element of like, you've been lied to, um, and you know, you've been failed by the healthcare system, which we, we would both agree is not perfect. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm giving you the truth. I'm not in bed with big pharma. I'm not in bed with bed with big food, big carb, you know, big sugar. Um, and, and, I, and so I'm more of an honest source of information who's cutting through the BS, you know, who's, who's, you know, doesn't have a tinfoil hat on, but totally yeah. has a tinfoil hat on the why, yeah. why is that so appealing to some people? Well, listen, I think part of it is that conspiracies can be fun and attractive, right? Like, I like entertaining some crazy thoughts just because it's fun, right? But some people um, have a hard time, I think, being able to dissect when somebody's be being perhaps conspiratorial and then like the truth of their information. Um, and what do I mean by that? Like, again, if we tie it back to what we were saying before, if some individual's trying this stuff out and having some success, well, if you're somebody who doesn't know much about nutrition, you've been trying perhaps all sorts of diets, which both you and I agree isn't the route that you should go forward with anyways, right? Like if you're following a diet that has a name, it's probably not going to work out long-term for the majority of people. But let's say you're that type of individual. You've tried a number of things. You haven't had much success. You run into this uh, carnivore doctor who's in great shape and doesn't disclose that they're taking testosterone, right? They're freaking jacked. They look fantastic. They reportedly uh, feel amazing. They have all of this energy. And then they're telling you that the reason they're like this is because of their diet. 
not because of any of the other healthy habits that they have, right? They don't drink alcohol, they sleep well, they have a pretty leisurely type of lifestyle for the most part. Um, so stress probably is not super high. Like they're not accounting any of those for any of those variables. They're just talking about their diet. And then they have this really well thought out story that ties everything together in terms of why this isn't more popular. I mean, it's not rocket science to see why it's it sells, right? It's really, it's really good marketing. Um, and the truth is that it's easy to fall for stuff like this when you don't have an expertise in the subject, right? I've fallen for it in other subjects, man. Like, listen, I like listening to, I listen to a number of podcasts that um, people would argue are controversial and don't have the best information. The reason why I listen to them is because they're fun. They're entertaining, right? Like I like listening to stuff for fun. So I like listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, for example. And I think all of the nutrition stuff on there is absolute bullshit, but I have literally, um, fallen for the same crap on other topics. So he, uh, has a friend called Graham Hancock. Have you heard of, of Graham Hancock? No. Anyways, He's this guy who's not, um, I'm going to butcher this, uh, in the field of, I don't know, who, who, what, what scientific field studies like, uh, um, like old civilizations. Yeah. And yeah. All yeah. I stuff. just Googled him. It says, so he, he promotes, I mean, it's funny that this is his Wikipedia page promotes pseudoscientific theories involving ancient civilizations and hypothetical lost okay, lands. Okay. okay. Um, it's not archaeology. Here we go. So, so there's like the the scientific archaeological narrative of how things occurred. I don't know how many number of years ago, right? And I know nothing about archaeology at all, right? Um, and I was listening to a Joe Rogan episode with this guy, and this guy would be like the carnivore guy, who's saying that all of archaeology is wrong, and essentially like this is actually what happened. And you listen to it, and if you don't know anything about archaeology, it sounds really compelling. Like I'm like, oh, like this kind of makes sense. And he has a show on Netflix, and I watched an episode. And I'm like, yeah, like this kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> I talked about it on social media once, and this guy reached out to me who uh, is was getting his PhD in archaeology. He's like, hey man, like I respect your work a ton, but like this is completely wrong, and here's why. And I was like, oh, like, this is a guy who actually know his stuff, knows his stuff. Uh, I, I must be wrong about this. But, like, it just goes to show that we're all gullible for this stuff, right? Um, I don't think it's it's really rocket science to see why people fall for false information. Especially in the context of a country and a planet that's getting unhealthier by the day. And so it, yeah. it's, it's like um, it's the rhetoric of, like, well, all the things you've heard are wrong because, look, we're all getting fatter and dying more. And here yeah. I am, jacked and tan. And I just eat steaks. And so I think that there's an element of like, listen, everybody, like the vast majority of people are whatever. I don't, let's use statistics. What, like 70% of our country is overweight and, and you know, a lot of attempts to lose weight lead to weight regain. And we can talk about that. That's a very, com we're not going to talk about that today, but that's a very complex thing that doesn't necessarily have to do with, uh, certainly doesn't have to do with people not eating or eating too many plants or not enough meat, but I think the fact that yeah. a lot of people who are listening to this have tried to lose weight, sustained it, and not been able to do so, will say they've tried and failed to do that many times or several times or, or whatever, or are struggling with it right now as they're listening to this. They, the, you know, kind of, uh, oh, the conventional wisdom, the stuff that you've tried, the stuff that you've been told isn't, isn't true. Here's the actual truth. 
Um, yeah, I agree that they're, they're ripe for that. I mean, I think people are, a lot of people are not at rock bottom, but the closer you go to rock bottom, the more likely you are to, sure. it probably goes all the way down. I'm thinking of like all the way back to like certain like cults, like who do those people go for? They go for people at like rock bottom who, who are looking for a, yeah. uh, you know, evangel evangelist, you know, uh, somebody yeah. like to like buy in and be like, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. And so cool. I agree with you. I think that it can be it can be tempting for people who have tried and failed other methods and they can they think that that's what they were told to do by, you know, big food, big pharma, big government and this is the this is actually how it's supposed to be done. So I see how people can get to a point where they're yearning for something different um and that it can be a compelling story. But once we look yeah. a little bit deeper into this, um and I guess if we're categorizing the carnivore diet just for people just it might not be self-explanatory for it that they eat only animal-based products, no plant-based foods. And so, you know, meat, you know, in a perfect world, they'd be eating organ meat and muscle meat and, you know, fish and eggs and dairy, um, but nothing that comes from plants. And uh, any any other, is there any any other no, caveat to that? It. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. And one, and let's go through some of the main claims or actually, let's let's park that for a second. I want to go through the claims after, and the two big ones we're going to go through are, are LDL being not an issue and fiber yeah. being non-essential. But I want to start with why somebody might feel better on a carnivore diet. I'll throw it to you. Yeah, I think this is a great place to start because that's the main question that people have. It's like, well, if it's so bad, why do some people feel so good? Right? Can I can and I pause you for one second because you you put a word yeah. in there that I need to address. You said some people, and I think that that's the starting point. I think some, I think people need to remember that, like that, some people feel better on this. I think yeah. a lot of people have it in their heads. They will say to me, "Well, then why do people feel better?" I'm like, "No, no, no, not people feel better. Some people feel better." And we'll talk yeah. about whether or not that's even for the long term. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was going to touch on that because from a marketing perspective, like. You have to understand a lot of these people are running business. Most of these people are running businesses, right? Like most of these carnivore dudes, um, the same way that we're running our business, but we're doing so slightly differently. But uh, the marketing is what sells, right? People who have really positive experiences are highlighted and people who don't have really positive experiences are not highlighted. And you rinse and repeat. And so it seems like it's a very successful diet. The truth is that you're just not hearing the story from the individuals that don't have success with it, Right. That's really what it, it's the same for any type of diet. Like anybody who's listening to this, who has tried a number of things. And we were talking about people who tried carnivore have probably tried a number of things before. Like the first time you heard about keto, you didn't hear about the people who had bad experiences with it. You only hear about the people that have good experiences. And the same thing can be said for anything, right? Like if I'm going to buy a new, um, I don't know, uh, whatever, a new couch and you look at the reviews, like you're looking at the people that had positive experiences with the product, right? So that's, one thing to remember, it's like your perception of the thing is skewed by the content that you're consuming and the content that you're consuming is highlighting positive experiences with the thing. So you're not getting a full picture, right? Um, but again, that's just people falling for it. If we move a step further, why do some people have positive experiences? I think it comes down to, to two things. Um, one is food sensitivities, right? And this one's quite simple, like a good amount of the, a good percentage of the population does have sensitivities to certain uh, plant-based foods, right? And we can categorize those as what are called FODMAP-containing foods, which are specific types of fermentable carbohydrates that are found in specific types of plant-based foods like cruciferous vegetables, 
and a number of other foods. Like for those of you guys listening, if you just Google FODMAP containing foods, you can find a list of them. And so for those individuals, in particular individuals who have uh, more severe, compli not complications, but symptoms, I should say, when they consume large amounts of those foods, if you eliminate those foods, you're going to feel better, right? And a carnivore diet, by definition, is the ultimate elimination diet. So you completely remove all of these foods. If you're having sensitivities to anything from your diet that's not meat, and you remove it, now you're going to feel a little bit better, at least temporarily, right? And I think that is compounded by the fact that if somebody is mainly going from or going from a mainly like Western type diet, where they're eating a ton of processed food, a ton of added sugar, um, the caloric content of their diet is pretty high. Uh, and now they start eating only meats. And let's be honest, if you're going from eating these hyper palatable foods to only eating meat, you're naturally going to eat less. You're not, I mean, I think steak is delicious. Most people do, but I'm sure if you're eating it all day, every day, you get bored of it, right? There's also really good research showing that like, uh, dietary redundancy, like eating the same things from day to day naturally leads to a reduction in caloric intake independent of what you're eating. So if you're just eating the same stuff day in and day out, you're likely eating less because you're just getting bored of it. Um, also protein is very satiating. And so what happens, you tend to lose weight. And let's say if that's compounded by the fact that you're losing weight and you were overweight and you had sensitivities to particular plant-based foods, and now you eliminate all that, you're getting in better shape. You're going to feel better, right? We know that excess adiposity aka body fat, right? So being overweight is the number one contributing factor to uh, developing certain chronic diseases. In addition to that, um, sleep complications, if you're very overweight, low energy, right? Uh, perhaps uh, issues with testosterone concentration. So yeah, it's a no brainer that if you start to eat only meat and you, you have sensitivities with these foods and now you're not eating them and you're losing some weight, and let's be honest, when people do this stuff, they're also focusing on other things too, right? They tend to take up other healthy behaviors as well. Like maybe they start exercising. Maybe they start focusing a little bit more on their sleep because these individuals who promote the carnivore diet, yes, they promote the carnivore diet, but they promote these other things as well. So if you're taking up the whole lifestyle, like diet is only one component of your health, right? It's one component. It can have a big effect on your health, but these other things are really important as well. And if you start taking up some of these other things, well, we can start to see why somebody might feel better, right? But we can say the same thing for, and this is going to be an extreme, but like a raw vegetable diet, right? Given that you're somebody who's not sensitive to some of these foods, again, it's, I think like nine or 10% of the population who is sensitive and, and the degree of sensitivity can vary. Like some people are way more sensitive than others. But nonetheless, if you just eat raw vegetables and nothing else, you might feel better, right? There's extreme camps, there's extreme raw vegans or whatever, like people who only eat fruit or people who only do that. And like, if you listen to the messaging, it's the exact same messaging. I used to follow conventional wisdom. Now I don't. Now I only eat these foods and I feel better. And it's like, we need to start picking up on the reason why. If all of these diets are completely different, yet the people following these diets or at the forefront of promoting these diets are making the same claims, well, then we need to take a step deeper and really look at the commonalities between these diets rather than say it's the diet itself. Um, hopefully that answered your question. I tend to I tend to go in a million different directions when I talk about this. No, dude, I mean, that was perfect. <laughs> I'm going to throw it in a couple of buckets. I think the buckets for yeah. me are people who have food, sensitivity, food sensitivities to certain plant foods and then 
the carnivore diet is essentially a, a, the ultimate elimination diet where you eliminate all plant foods. And so let's say you are sensitive to FODMAPs and you have some digestive issues when you eat FODMAPs. Um, if you eliminate all of them, you, you know, we see that there's a high percentage of people, you know, uh, the statistics are like, you know, people with IBS, let's say that's like, you know, in that like five to 10% in the United States. And then of those people, you know, I think it's like two thirds to three quarters of them feel better when they eliminate FODMAPs. So we're not talking about a completely um, insignificant percentage of the total population that might feel better if they eat less FODMAPs. But this is like scorched earth, man. This is like collateral damage. This is like, we got rid of FODMAPs and we got rid of a whole bunch of other stuff that would yeah. be helpful for you that you actually tolerate just fine, but we got rid of that too. Okay. Now, the idea of an elimination diet is like, again, as a independently as a construct is a useful tool uh, when people have digestive issues to kind of figure out what foods they are sensitive yeah. to. Maybe it's um, people with IBS, IBD, other digestive uh, uh, issues. That, that's a normal process to go through with a doctor is, is a, with a specialist, go through an elimination diet. This just is, hey, we're not even bothering to kind of figure out what might not be making you feel so great and we're getting rid of everything. And so it's a yeah. scorched earth, man. It's just, everything's gone. And so um, food sensitivities is one bucket. Um, I think weight loss is the second bucket. And that weight loss comes from an increased satiety just from protein perspective, but also like you said, increased redundancy from lack of variety, um, lack of decision fatigue, um, lack of, you know, non-biological drives to eat, like just like lack of like other things that might push you to eat that you just have so little yeah. options that between the fact that the, the diet is probably super satiating if you're doing it correctly um, and the fact that you don't have a lot of variety, you're probably going to lose some weight. Um, and again, that, that that's contextual, but let's assume that that's somebody's goal anyway, that might also influence. And then the third bucket would be other healthy lifestyle behaviors done in concert. So together with those, with these changes, you're like, yeah. oh, I'm gonna go carnivore and I'm gonna start exercising more. It's like, okay, like we're doing multiple things at once. I'm gonna focus on my sleep and stress management, get outside in the sun more, you know, tan my perineum, you know, all these really, really important things, you know, get my, get like my butthole tanned, you know? And so, um, and so, and then the fourth I'd say is, is placebo, frankly. I think that there's such- I was about to bring that up, yeah. I think there's such, um, a, like a tribal element to it of like, well, I'm so, I'm on, I'm in all these carnivore forums. I'm in all these carnivore yeah, yeah, comment exactly. sections. Everyone's feeling amazing. I'm out on Reddit in these carnivore forums. And like, I, I know I'm going to feel better. And, and I had some of this with keto. I went keto for about, about 13 months straight. I didn't miss one single meal. Actually, I missed one single meal. That's true. On my, on Jenna's birthday, I felt terrible. Um, which again is something I want to circle back to with the food sensitivities because, um, yeah, I don't want to go. I want to go back to that because that's actually super important. But I, I was, con I was very convinced that I was feeling great, and all the things that like might not have been feeling great, I washed them away. And I think that's some of the, what I'm starting to see now. And what's interesting is, you know, we're starting. We don't have data people that have been on a carnivore diet for years, you know. But we're starting to see because this has been around for some time. People who have been in it again anecdotally for years, we're starting to see some of what happens when you're on these sorts of diets for years. You know, accounts like Carnivore Cringe, and even just um, I've been on a deep dive on Reddit to like because I had some clients who like saw some of that Carnivore Cringe account and they were like, "I'm not sure if this is real. Is this real? Like, are these people real?" And if you're listening to this and you want, I highly recommend going to follow it. Basically, it's an account that just highlights some of the the people who are having negative experiences because they don't get highlighted elsewhere. They kind of get shunned down. Um, and what I would say, what is an interesting statement is 
I would rather somebody be on a well-formulated carnivore diet than the standard American diet. And so there's a big element of like what you were doing before. And so like, if you were, you know, on a standard American diet and now you eat, uh, you know, red meat, eggs, uh, and less calories and you lose weight, like I bet you, you are healthier as of this moment. And so there is just an, a big element of like, yes, just because somebody moves in a direction of better health doing a thing, that doesn't mean that that, that will continue or that doesn't mean that, listen, there's an opportunity cost. Like you could have done a million other things. You know, I always say like yeah. for, you know, the best way to do the carnivore diet is to add fruits and vegetables, you know? And so like, you know, <laughs> there's like, um, there's just an element of what you were doing before. And I want to circle back to that food sensitivities thing because there's an, there's a really tricky, there's like a really sneaky thing that I think these people do. And they say, hey, cut out the carnivore diet, see how you feel. And then these people who have certain food sensitivities and then maybe all of this other stuff too, they're starting to lose weight. They they do other healthy lifestyles. They placebo and tribe, tribal themselves into feeling better. Then they say, well, they're, they're like, do I have to do this forever? And they're like, oh yeah, just maybe try and add in some food, right? Maybe try and add in some vegetables or whatever. People go back to eating, you know, their normal diet with a bunch of these plant foods and they feel worse because they haven't eaten them in a very long time. And if you add all of that stuff back in at once, you more than likely aren't gonna feel, well, that's not fair. If you are somebody who had these digestive issues in the first place and you add all of that stuff back in, you're probably going to go back to feeling less good. And then it's this feedback loop of, oh yeah, that means I should keep doing this thing. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna add to that like, yeah, our digestive system also tends to adapt to the type of diet that we consume, right? Like we'll talk about fiber a little bit later, I know, but just to, to, to say in general, like consuming fiber we know is healthy for us. But if you go from eating zero fiber to consuming 30, 40 grams of fiber a day, you're going to be bloated and gassy, right? Like beans or legumes in general tend to be some of the highest sources of fiber, dietary fiber, and they're great for your health. If you never eat them and you start eating a good amount of them, like you're not going to feel the most comfortable for some time, right? Because your body's not used to that. Like your gut microbiome changes in response to the type of diet that you consume. So yeah, if you go from not eating any fiber at all, introducing a ton of fiber, you might feel a little bit bloated. You may even have a little bit of constipation, gassiness. By the way, that doesn't mean that your diet is unhealthy for you, right? Like you will get used to it. Again, it takes some time. This, the opposite is true too. Like one of the main side effects of going carnivore is what people call loose stools, right? You're just like shitting water essentially. And it's because you have no fiber. And it's funny because then the carnivore community is just like, oh, it's just a temporary phase. Like you get, you know, you'll get out, you'll get out of that. And I, I don't know whether you actually get out of it or not because I've never done a carnivore diet. But it's just funny because it's the same exact thing happening in reverse. But they're just like, oh, it's just a symptom of it, right? Um, I was going to mention here the placebo thing is so important to talk about because what you believe in is such a powerful thing, right? And I don't want to get too like, uh, what's the word? Uh, I guess I don't have a word for this, but like if somebody goes carnivore, like you mentioned, and they're really excited about it and they really believe it and they find a community of people that are doing really well with it and they're fully bought in, like, yes, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel good if you do anything like that, right? Because just being part of a community is going to make you feel good. Having a social circle is going to make you feel good. It's all of these additional variables that people don't tend to think about that have really profound effects, but we just, again, just say, oh, it's just the, the, the exact types of foods that we're eating and not anything else. Um, anyways, I know, again, I'm going into a different topic than your question. So I'll stop there so we can talk into, uh, talk about some of the specific topics. I mean, on placebo, just to be clear, I mean, we have studies where yeah. people take like 
um, you know, basically like sugar pills or totally benign pills and they're told that it's blood pressure medication or, and it, and people see blood yeah, pressure exactly. go down. And so like placebo effect is the strongest drug that exists. You know what I mean? Like it is the, it is incredibly powerful. Um, and so, you know, and in some ways we can use placebo to our advantage. I think it works in the long term, to the disadvantage of the of the carnivore goer here, um, but I think that there are circumstances where placebo, where we can lean on placebo effect. But in this context, I feel like it it ends up being taking people down a path that they that they shouldn't necessarily, mm. or or most people shouldn't be going down. So let's mm. let's talk LDL. I kind of want to I kind of want to have this be a place where we can put this to bed. Um, I think we can start with this claim. Like let's let's be real. Like if you go on a, if you go on a carnivore diet very likely saturated fat intake goes through the roof. And we know that for most people, in most cases, you eat more saturated fat. We see cholesterol go up, triglycerides go up, LDL go up. And yeah. and we have, I just, I really struggle with this. We have so much data on LDL and heart disease. Um, and something that you and, you and Adrian on your podcast talked about was that like, people will look at the LDL research and, and, claim that it's all um, like epidemiological, it's, it's all, it's all uh, observational. Um, and they'll package that away and throw it away as if that doesn't matter. So can we just have this discussion of like, hey, is having high LDL something I should worry about if I wanna not die? Yeah, uh, that's the, we'll definitely take a deep dive on this. I quickly wanted to say, cause this is something people tend to get confused as well when we talk about a carnivore diet. Um, people just like, oh, are you saying that meat is bad? Right. And again, it's people just like not trying to have any nuanced discussion at all. But I think both you and I would agree that you can have a very healthy diet with a lot of meat. There's just no reason not to consume other foods. Right. And we'll talk about what research shows in terms of what is healthiest diet and why variety matters and all that stuff aside just from fiber. Right. Because if we look at the totality of research, like it seems that in general, there are a number of different dietary patterns that can be really healthy for people and help with longevity and health span. What seems to be a commonality amongst them is variety, right? The, the greater your dietary variety, especially if it's coming from minimally processed foods, theoretically, the better your health outcomes should be, right? So if you're consuming a wider variety of fruits and vegetables, of plant-based foods and animal-based foods, that is probably what's going to be optimal for health. And so if you think about it from that perspective, something like a carnivore-ish diet or even keto or any very restricted diet, it's not going to be optimal because you have very little dietary variety. We need to understand that all foods, and especially, again, focusing here, talking about minimally processed foods, foods that come from the earth, quote unquote, right? Um, they all have positive health effects. And as we were talking about earlier, there's no such thing as a bad food outside of the context of your entire diet. Um, and in reality, like no individual food is going to inherently have a negative impact on your health and they can all have certain positive impacts on your health. So realistically, if you're, if you're worried about your health and you want to live as long as possible, you should be trying to include more foods in your diet, not less. Now, transitioning from that, talking about LDL, um, Okay, so people talk about the fact that the data on LDL and cardiovascular disease tends to be observational data or cross-sectional data or whatnot. What does that even mean in the first place? What is LDL? Is it dangerous? Let's talk about these one at a time. So 
you mentioned that your audience most likely already knows what LDL is, but just quick recap, LDL is what we call bad cholesterol. I don't really like that term because HDL and LDL are really just molecules that carry cholesterol in the blood, okay? Or throughout the body, I should say. And we call HDL good cholesterol because HDL picks up cholesterol from our bloodstream and brings it back into the liver, whereas LDL deposits cholesterol in the bloodstream, right? That's the simplest way we can talk about it. And why is that bad? Because if you have an excess amount of cholesterol being deposited in your arteries, you can have a plaque uh, buildup. There's other complex things that happen as well, like LDL can become oxidized depending on the environment of the stuff in the blood, right? But in general, the higher your LDL is, the higher the risk of plaque buildup is. And if you have plaque buildup, you have cardiovascular disease, right? Because blood can't flow properly through the arteries if there is a net buildup of plaque relative to um, the amount of HDL circulating, picking stuff up, right? That's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. So yes, that's highly mechanistic. And the funny thing is people say like, oh, that's just mechanistic, is explaining why the thing happens. But then if we look at actual clinical research, we see the same thing, right? And most of the research on LDL and cardiovascular disease is observational in nature. Why? because it takes a long ass time to develop cardiovascular disease, right? You can't give people a high saturated fat diet and expect them to have heart disease a week from now or even a year from now. Most, most interventional studies, which is what people like to call like the gold standard of research, like double blind controlled placebo uh, clinical trial, um, most of them, like the longest ones will last one or two years, right? Why? Because it's really freaking expensive. It's really expensive. Um, a, a year-long nutritional study will not go under like uh, five, six hundred thousand dollars, right? And and that's really on the cheaper end as well. Like that's if you're just using very basic lab tests, don't have a huge lab. Like it's really expensive. Okay. So aside from the expense, if you're doing a study to figure out the effects of a particular nutrient or a particular biomarker on the development of a disease you're going to have to study a population for a really long time, five years, 10 years, 20 years. That's why it's observational in nature, because it takes a long time to develop these diseases. But there's no, there's literally no doubt that there's a very strong relationship between LDL cholesterol and risk of cardiovascular disease. The higher your LDL cholesterol is, the higher your risk of cardiovascular disease is. And then if we take a step back, we know from randomized clinical trials that higher saturated fat intake results in an increase in LDL cholesterol. And this is an important to uh, topic to talk about because it's also dependent on genetics. Um, everybody is not equally sensitive to the LDL uh, increasing effects of saturated fat, right? Some people are way more sensitive than others. Adrian and I talked about this. He's somebody who's pretty sensitive. Like he sees it, uh, a direct effect on his LDL cholesterol when he eats saturated fat. He has a family history of cardiovascular disease. If a lot of people in your family have had cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, a heart attack, you probably are a little bit more sensitive. Not 100%, but genetics plays a big role. Right. So this is another reason why, like some people can eat a ton of saturated fat and they don't have any negative impacts on LDL cholesterol because some individuals aren't as sensitive. But in general, higher saturated fat is going to increase LDL cholesterol. That's well known. Right. And we know from 
observational studies with literally hundreds of thousands of individuals, that higher LDL will increase risk of cardiovascular disease. So I think, you know, the, the data is pretty clear on this. It's, I think, pretty silly to try to dispute this, but people obviously try. <laughs> and the main thing that they say is, again, that the data is observational. It doesn't really mean much. They also try to say things, by the way, this argument that it's observational is hilarious because the carnivore community uses observational data to back up their claims, right? So it's cherry picking. Like if you're going to say this type of research is not valid, then you can't use the same type of research to validate your claims. And the reason the reason they do so is because there's like no legitimate evidence to support the carnivore diet, right? And then in addition to this, essentially what a lot of people in the carnivore community do is make up hypothesis, right? A hypothesis is an idea. And in, in, in most cases, um, it hasn't been tested yet, right? So they'll say things like, yes, LDL cholesterol is bad in the context of an omnivorous diet. It's like, well, how the hell do you dispute that? Like there really isn't any evidence to, to suggest that claim is true. And there also really isn't any evidence to dispute that claim. So it's like, you can, you can make stuff up that sounds kind of good, and there's just like no evidence to say that it's not true. So, but but just because there's no evidence to suggest that it's not true does not mean that it is true, right? So that's one of the things that I really struggle with when it comes to that, man. I really, I really, I feel like they're just, I, I don't know, I really struggle with this. I feel like it's not, like, I wonder what hill they're dying on. I think they're just working in the opposite direction of like, well, I found my way to this tribe and now I'm only eating meat and in the short time I've been doing it, I feel better. And now I'm gonna just reverse engineer a hypothesis as to why that is. And I'm going to, I'm gonna shop around for the hypothesis that makes sense to me. I'm gonna try and figure out a mechanism that that as of right now can't be like directly refuted. And I'm gonna go with that. Instead of like, well, what does the data tell us? And and given that data, what's the best course of action on a from a general population in terms of giving advice, suggestions, dietary patterns? I feel like they're just going in the opposite direction. I really don't know where people come up with this idea that like, like right now, observational research, okay, cool. People have hired LDL, higher, higher rates of cardiovascular disease. And then we have more controlled studies that say, hey, when you eat more saturated fat, again, different, it differs from person to person. On average, people see LDL go up. Yeah. And what is the carnivore diet? It's super, super high in saturated fat. And so I'm just not sure how you square that circle. Like, and what's funny is like, what if we look at like meat consumption, one of the things that actually like can reduce whatever the downsides of meat may be is actually like uh, plant food yeah. intake alongside of it which I always yeah. found hysterical. If you're like looking at from a carcinogen perspective, like people who like, like charred meat and stuff, like if you're looking at what actually yeah. reduces the downside of some of that stuff, it's like eating that steak with plants, which is I just find, yeah. I find hysterical. I, I'm like, do, do we, don't, we don't need to go too deep into this, but like what is, you're a carnivore zealot, what are you saying to us right now if you're sitting with us, hearing us be like, okay, observational is LDL, leads to higher cardiovascular disease, intervention studies, we have saturated fat leads to higher LDL, maybe don't, maybe limit, maybe on a general long, like uh, uh, across a large population, like if we're giving advice, managing slash don't eat too much saturated fat is, is a pretty solid piece of advice if you don't wanna die of cardiovascular disease. Like what are, like, and you could be like, hey, I'm not really even sure what they would say, but but what are, what are they saying? How are they squaring that circle? If we have, if we have uh, what's his name? If we have Saladino here with us or whatever, Carnivore MD, like um, what are they saying to that? Dude, they essentially say that a lot of the research isn't valid. It's hard, it's hard to talk about this because, listen, I have taken 
hours of my life to just actually listen to what these people have to say. And I think Carnivore MD, like uh, Paul Saladino, obviously gets a ton of hate. And I know why. And like, I dispute his claims frequently. I think he's not one of the more like, um, he's not one of like the really evil ones. Because he always says like, hey, if what you're doing right now feels good for you. Like, don't change anything. He usually says like, this way of eating has made me feel better. And it makes a ton of people feel better, whatever. There's other individuals like Dr. Sean Baker, who actually say that only eating meat is the most optimal thing. And so there's varying degrees of like charlatans in the community, in the in the carnivore space too. And man, it just comes down to them saying that the research is not valid for X, Y, Z reasons, right? So it, it goes back to the conspiratorial uh, style of thinking. And um, Adrian and I talked about this a lot in the episode that we did because people don't understand how research actually works, right? Because, man, like I spent a lot of my life doing research and I did not see like, they, they make it seem like very um, glorious and like, uh, again, conspiratorial, where like researchers are fudging all of this stuff because they have a certain relationship with food companies and they're trying to get all this money. And it's just not that glamorous at all, right? Like the main the main argument, Jordan, to answer your question directly, is that all of this research is invalid. Because when you present the research, they're just like, oh, well, this, this, and this, and food companies and government, like it's all made up, it's not valid. And hey, if you believe that, like, that's hard to dispute, right? Like, it's really hard to dispute because you don't have experience in the field. And second off, like, you can argue that any conspiracy is true. We just, like, don't have evidence to prove them, right? But listen, as somebody who spent five years doing a postgraduate degree, getting my PhD, working in a lab, actually producing this research, from my experience and the experience of many of my friends who have gone through the same journey, you don't see any of this stuff. Like, none of this stuff is actually true. First off, you don't just get money from food companies. That's not how it works, right? Like researchers do not have um, just like a, a deal or are buddy buddies with certain food companies and get a ton of money. Do some researchers get preferentially funded for certain things? Sure. But it's not this like super large conspiracy. Second to that, is there research fraud? Sure. Just like there's fraud in any field, but it's not the vast majority of what's being produced. Um, third, when you're gonna when you when you're gonna get funding for a study, like the hoops that you have to go through to actually get funding, right? Like you have to write a grant, you have to submit a grant. Then researchers from different universities who have nothing to do with the company or nothing to do with you volunteer to review the grant. They review hundreds of grants and then they fund the ones that they think are best. Usually when you get funded for a study, especially if you're getting funded by, by a private company, there are disclosures that you're allowed to publish the research independent of what the findings are. So it's not like the researcher is being uh, pressured to publish some type of finding. That's not true at all. Like in, in my lab, we would publish the research independent of the findings, right? Now, normally we were testing things like the effects of almonds on uh, blood lipids or or beans on cardiovascular health. Like, yes, there are positive outcomes there, but it, it's not because the research is bought off. It's because those would actually benefit those outcomes, right? And then after that, to publish research, it's not like 
I found something and I just publish it, you have to submit it to a journal. And then again, there is a whole host of reviewers, usually four to five people. And these people have nothing, like no vested interest in your research. By the way, these people volunteer to do this work. So there's no money involved in this work and this review process. So they review the research, they critique it, they send it back to you for, for uh, a second draft. You have to fix it. Like it's a really complicated system. And by the way, there's very, very little money in the whole system. Like in the nutrition space, top researchers are making 120, 130 grand. And like, yes, that's not bad money, but that's not money. Right? Like these people are not uh, fudging all of this research to make 100K. And in addition to that, researchers can't actually pay themselves a whole host of money from, from the research grant. Like there are limits on it. Most of the money that researchers make is from their salary from the institution, right? They make a small percentage of income from the research and it usually funds their salary over the summer. So it's just like not nearly as glorious as people make it seem. It's just hard to know these things unless you've actually done it. If you, it's really hard to get to that level of cynicism. I feel like if you go, if you adopt that level of cynicism, it's really, it's really tough to look at the world in that way it, it, it just is a slippery slope, I think, to a dark, dark place of mistrust with for yeah. everything. And I think that that goes back to our original point of like mistrust for government and and like big pharma and all this stuff, especially with the with what's going on with the pandemic. And I feel like it's just we're in a in a situation in the world where that level of cynicism is ripe. And so that argument yeah. of like, yeah, just follow the money, you know, that, oh, check who is funded by. It's like, it's just like very, yeah. it's very enticing. And, and and I just feel like if if you're going to go to this level of cynicism of like throwing all of this research that we have out, first of all, then don't use any research at all. Don't give me the like, but this research is good. You know, it's like, well, yeah. you know, give me yeah, pick, yeah, yeah, pick yeah, a side here, my man, you know, um, but going to that level the of cynicism. Way, uh, the, the like, the like, um, man, I always forget specific words that I'm trying to to <laughs> bring up, but like the cattle industry and stuff and the dairy industry is actually like funding a lot of this research as well, right? But like like you mentioned, they don't disclose, not that they don't disclose, but they don't address the point of funding for the research Their that side. they use. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And a couple more points that I wanted to bring up here, because I think they're really, really important. Talking about like what type of arguments that these individuals use. Um, first off, in the scientific community, like in the nutrition space, like in whatever niche of research you're in, it's a very tight-knit community, right? Like it's not a huge community of like hundreds of thousands of people. Like people tend to know each other. And if you're a nutrition researcher in the space of cardiovascular health, like it's a tight circle. The, the people that are producing that research, they know each other. And if you are a fraud, like you're called out, right? It, it's not like it's hush-hush. Uh, it's, it's not like that at all. Like researchers, for the most part, um, are people with high integrity and like they really value being honest to the science. And if it is known that a researcher is conducting misconduct, um, it's called out, man. Like it's not tolerated at all. That person is ridiculed. Like they're not collaborated with. It's it's not good. And there's a really good example here in the exercise physiology side of things. I'm not sure if you heard about this, probably like eight years ago or so, um, there was a researcher that actually came out of Florida State. So my the university that did my PhD and he graduated a couple years prior to myself. 
um, his name is Jacob Wilson, and he published this uh, study showing that yep, uh, beta exactly. hydroxybutyrate, which yeah, exactly yeah which is just is. some shitty supplement, was essentially better than testosterone to like build muscle. Right? Here's a perfect example of a very shitty study getting through the review process and being published because this stuff happens. It tends to happen in journals that are not as reputable, where it's not as strict to publish work. It happens. What happened as soon as other top researchers, and one of them was my postdoctoral mentor, Dr. Michael Ormsby, as soon as they saw this, they're like, wait, hold up. Like, we know this isn't true. And uh, a number of researchers wrote letters to the journal. The article got retracted. The person was ridiculed. They're no longer in academia. Like, it's this stuff is not tolerated, you know, like, it's just not. So it's funny. It's funny to think that there's just like, this large amount of academic misconduct. Um, again, the whole system would have to be lying in order for this to be true. And again, if you believe that, it's what it is. And the other point that they use to argue that this research on LDL specifically isn't um, appropriate or correct, like all of these carnivore guys cite this one study showing that individuals with really low cholesterol have a higher risk of mortality. Right. So it's like, how can high LDL be bad if like people with really, really low cholesterol die? And it's like, guys, listen, these things that we look at, whether it's your blood sugar, your LDL, whatever it is, they're they're technically proxies, right? They're proxy measurements for something that may be going on. We know that if you have high LDL, something is going on that's resulting in cardiovascular disease. Now, with LDL, we really understand the mechanisms, right? But Understand that these things are proxy measurements. And in certain contexts, the the relationship between a particular outcome and the proxy measure can be slightly different. Right. I was just I just published a, a little video last week on like this guy showing a study that like fiber helped reduce constipation in some individuals. And it's like, yeah, it's population specific. If some individuals have sensitivities to some of these foods, they remove fiber, they're gonna they're gonna feel better, right? They're not gonna have digestive issues. That doesn't mean that you can extrapolate that to the entire population. So in individuals who are pretty much on their deathbed, we need to understand that cholesterol plays many important physiological functions, right? We use cholesterol to produce a whole host of things, including testosterone, estrogen, et cetera. When we are really, really sick, our bodies stop producing cholesterol. What people don't understand is that the majority of the cholesterol in your body is produced by your body. It is endogenous, right? I think it's like 60 or 70% on average is produced endogenously. And this is another reason why consuming cholesterol doesn't have a huge impact on your cholesterol because if you eat more, you produce less and vice versa. But when you're on your deathbed, you just don't produce as much cholesterol. It's a byproduct of being really, really sick. So yeah, no shit. Like people who have super low cholesterol, um, who are on their deathbed have a higher risk of dying, right? But they use that one study to like support their claims and again, ignore the dozens of studies that show the exact opposite. This this study is one that I just, it kills me every single time because it represents a something that scares the shit out of me, which is either on their part, a level of corrupt, like willing ignorance. Like, like this is not a complicated thing, by the way. This study basically no. was like what, like showing that people live longer with higher cholesterol and people who are dying have lower cholesterol or whatever. But it was like done in like really old people and, and people that were like going into the hospital. And this is like a very simple thing. It's like, yes, the people who were already dying from something else 
also had lower cholesterol in that moment because as a person who's dying of something else, their body's producing less cholesterol. And it is not complicated. And it scares me that that they are either not able to put this together themselves, which scares the shit out of me, or that it, what scares me even more, which is more likely the case, because I refuse to believe that, that people with just a level of a certain IQ are unable to either yeah. figure this out themselves when they read studies, or this has been something that people have critiqued for a while. So you read the critique, you hear the critique, what are you not able to internalize it? And so they're just willingly not, uh, or, or just like willingly not showing or talking about that point when they're when they're kind of using this as a way to kind of bolster their argument. It scares the shit out of me. It's like, it comes it, it, the other one that, that is, I find uh, runs in my circles quite a bit is this misunderstanding of uh, substrate utilization and like burning fat for fuel and like, yo, you turn into a fat burning machine and this workout burns more oh, fat. Yeah. And I'm like, there are really, really, really smart people with like high IQs, like who are misunderstanding the difference between fat loss and substrate utilization in terms of like what energy your body's using for fuel. Like, and, it, and I just, I'm really, ner I get really, ner I get really uncomfortable. If you're watching on YouTube, you say I'm quite uncomfortable right now because I just don't, I'm not I'm like, these people can't at this point be not understanding this. There's no way they don't understand it. They're just, yeah. they just know that if they backtrack on this, it really hurts their business. And that really is what it comes down to. Yeah, I would say there's two camps there. One is, I would say that from individuals like Dr. Sean Baker, it's intentionally malicious, like intentionally ignoring it. Because this guy like lives, breathes, the carnivore diet. He just talks about diet all the time. I would say there are other individuals who talk about, for example, like consuming fat, burning fat, uh, substrate utilization, who are experts in other fields who try to dabble in nutrition. So they don't actually spend the time reading the stuff. They kind of just like, oh, this mechanism makes sense. So I'm going to say this. And they don't actually understand the nuances of like the outcome-based data. Because to be honest, man, in a lot of these other fields, there's a there's a big emphasis on mechanistic data, right? Unfortunately, in nutrition, it's it's a little bit more complex because it, it's not as simple as like one mechanism, one outcome, right? So perhaps, and this is me trying to steel man their point of view, is it's that they apply the same principles that work in their area of expertise to nutrition, right? And like, it's just not like that. So if somebody is an expert in whatever other scientific field, that's highly mechanistic, or maybe doesn't even have much to do with physiology, right? And they're like, oh, okay, the mechanism shows that insulin uh, prevents you from burning fat. Um, and if you eat fat, you use more fat. Yeah, that makes sense. And then they just say that, right? But they don't understand the outcome data. I think it's two different, two different things there. Some people being intentionally malicious, and then some people just stepping outside of their area of expertise. And that's a thing that people try uh, tend to struggle with because it's like, this guy's an expert, he's a doctor. It's like, yes, but you need to be an expert specifically in the field you study, right? The same way that I was talking about the archeology span example earlier, like obviously don't know jack shit about that, right? Doesn't mean I have the right to talk about that because I'm a doctor, quote unquote. So I think it, it's a little bit different depending on what the where the person's coming from. Yeah, the, the last thing, and, and I'll give you a chance to close the book on LDL, put a button on it, we'll move to fiber. I know we got, I wanna be respectful of your time, we got 15 minutes here. Um, is that I would 15, say- 20 that, minutes, we're good. Yeah, I would say that if, if somebody is in a state of poor metabolic health, they have obesity, yeah. they have other like comorbidities right now, and you go on a carnivore diet and you lose a lot of weight, 
and you get and you by other accounts get healthier in terms of exercise, lifting weights, start doing some cardiovascular exercise. Yeah. Like I and you started with like 300 LDL or something and you're you might be eating more saturated fat, but by all other metrics in terms of, of things that would affect your metabolic health, you're you're making improvements. Um, yep. You might see LDL go down and you might see yeah. other just like by and large, you be, you will be a healthier person. And so that that's also like what I'll hear is like, well, I did. Yeah. I was 350 pounds. Now I'm 190 pounds, and I'm my LDL went from you know 400 to 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 95, and I'm like y y yes. And by the way, that that's fantastic. Like I'm I'm stoked for that person. Like they yeah, are healthier, sure. and I'm super pumped for you. But that isn't. I mean, that's just like whatever. On a very basic level, that is a unique scenario, and 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 you did a good thing for yourself, but you didn't do. Like you can't say that that was the best thing you could have done and that you wouldn't have been or wouldn't currently be or wouldn't in the future be healthier with the inclusion of plant foods. And so it's like, great, I'm, I'm super happy you did that. What you're doing, what you what you went, the carnivore diet was much better than what you were doing before and helped you lose weight and yeah. encouraged you to do other healthy habit lifestyle factors. It's awesome. But that is one that I just see quite a bit as well. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I don't think that example is so unique because I would say that most of the people that they highlight who have really large improvements in the way they feel and health are people who have made radical transformations, right? Like this guy went carnivore. Like you don't want to, you're not going to promote somebody who went carnivore and lost five pounds. You're going to promote somebody who went carnivore and lost a hundred pounds. Right. And the truth is that excess adiposity is a much bigger contributing factor to having adverse health outcomes than specific nutrients. Like that's just the truth. Right. We know that, again, and I would never recommend this, but if somebody has excess weight to lose and they lose weight eating just McDonald's or just Twinkies or whatever it may be, and they supplement for the nutritional deficiencies, like their health is going to be, uh, it's going to be better. That's so difficult for people to accept because they want to think of, of food as healthy or unhealthy. And in some contexts, you can make some arguments Obviously, we can argue that some foods have more health-promoting effects than others, but it's really hard to argue that in all contexts, there's a particular food that's bad, like we were talking about before, right? And it's because it's confounded by quantity. At the end of the day, the quantity of food that you eat chronically over a long term is the biggest contributing factor to adverse health outcomes. Like obesity is the biggest predictor of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, everything, everything. Why? I think as it stands at the moment, the way we understand um, the etiology or the development of these diseases is that they all tend to have a commonality, which is chronic low-grade inflammation. And I, tend, I think this tends to be oversimplified a little bit too when people talk about inflammation because people don't really understand what inflammation is, okay? So when we talk about the term inflammation, what we're really talking about is a specific immune response. So what we're talking about is an increased concentration of what we call pro-inflammatory molecules. And these molecules can be released from our immune system, from our adipose tissues, our fat cells, et cetera. And it's influenced by a number of variables like stress, sleep, like all of these things influence uh, how many of these molecules you secrete. And there's a whole host of these molecules, right? There's things like TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, CRP. Typically, people are familiar with CRP because that's what you get tested when you go get blood work done, right? But in essence, these different molecules, again, we'll talk a little bit mechanistically here, they do things to your physiology that cause insulin resistance, 
or that cause plaque to build up quicker or cause cognitive decline or cause inflammation in your joints. Like these little molecules are contributing to development of a lot of these diseases. And when you have excess adiposity, there's a change in the environment of your fat tissue specifically that causes your fat to release a higher quantity of, the, of these inflammatory molecules. They're not like super elevated, but they're slightly elevated for a really long time. For a really long time. Why? Because if you have excess adiposity, they're always going to be slightly elevated. And this is what we call chronic low grade because they're not like spiking. They're just slightly elevated chronic low grade inflammation. And over time, as we understand it now, this is like the main cause for the development of most chronic diseases, right? So if you lose body fat, then that's not going on to the same degree. So you have a reduced risk of developing diseases. And the, the effects of adiposity tend to be much larger than the effects of individual nutrients. I know that was a long-winded answer, but I, I hope that it, it makes sense as to why adiposity is a bad thing. Because that's one thing people ask too. They're like, okay, like you just want to lose fat because you just care about looking better. Like there's nothing wrong with being fat. First and foremost, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Like we're not saying you're a bad person because you have, have adiposity. Like that's not what anybody's saying, but we are saying that it can pose negative health effects. And the reason why is this mechanism that I was explaining essentially. So are you, are you turning this into a healthy at every size podcast? If you let me. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd love to though, but uh, cool. Let's, <laughs> let's pivot. Let's talk fiber. I think fiber is, it's not that this section will be short, but it's that the argument is short. And it's that fiber sure, sure. is non-essential and that we don't need fiber. And that and that non-essential, it sounds really like a, sounds really cool. Like explain, yeah. to, explain to the listener like what non-essential means and why it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. Sure, so by definition, fiber is non-essential, by definition. And when we use the word essential in the context of nutrition, we're talking about the fact that you need to eat these things on a regular basis or you're going to have adverse outcomes in the short term, right? So like if you don't eat any protein, you're going to see side effects pretty quickly. To be honest, I can't put a time frame on it because I don't really know like how quickly, but much quicker than it would be if you had like a fiber deficient diet, right? Or if you don't consume any vitamin D or any vitamin B12, like these nutrients that are incredibly important for day-to-day -day, like physiological functions that's how we'll put it like your body needs these nutrients to function regularly and if you don't have these nutrients you're going to have adverse health effects that are going to be pretty noticeable right that's what we call essential nutrients non-essential nutrients are everything else that is not going to have uh, an immediate negative impact on your health if you don't consume it on a daily basis right so by definition you don't have to consume an adequate amount of fiber every day. Like you're not going to die next week. You're not going to die next month. You're not going to die next year. Right. But I, I personally categorize fiber as an essential nutrient. If we talk about, I guess we don't even need to use the word essential, right? Like if we're just talking about nutrients that we know are going to promote health and increase lifespan, um, fiber is certainly one of those Fiber is probably the most important, right? Like if you asked me, I think I think there's also like a shift in the like uh, social environment where like people are talking more and more about fiber recently because it used to be just protein and I was one of those where I would only talk about protein. But if we talk about nutrition from a health based perspective and like wanting to live, live as long as possible, reducing your risk of disease as much as possible from a nutritional perspective, like fibers it, fibers it, right? Like even 
not even discussing specific diseases. A higher consumption of fiber is associated with a reduced risk of all-cause mortality. Again, that is dying of any cause, right? And and here, these studies are really just grouping like overall disease mortality. But that includes things like cancer, right? It's not just cardiovascular disease, and it's not just diabetes. And I think some of these other diseases, one, one hard thing that people have, a, a thing that people have a hard time wrapping their mind around is like, if we go back to the mechanistic stuff, it's like, if we don't understand the mechanism, um, it's not really worth discussing or like people have a hard time uh, bringing it up because perhaps they don't feel like they can really like defend it or explain it, right? Like, I don't necessarily know the mechanism as to why higher fiber consumption is going to reduce the risk of something like cancer, right? But I do know that the relationship exists. And that's so important, right? Because what's the phrase? Is it missing the health of the forest for the tree? Right, where we tend to focus on just like the minute de details when we have the outcome data showing us what we need to know. Can I can I pause you for yeah. one second? And I think that's something that we yeah. we we maybe both of us missed on the on the observational research stuff. One of the things, one of the common misconceptions, and I think I've made this when I first started to increase my literacy in terms of reading papers and understanding hierarchy of evidence and all this stuff. Um, I bought into this argument. And the argument that people will use against observational data when they feel like it is that this data didn't control for certain confounding variables. And they'll uh, be like, yeah. oh, this is healthy user bias. Or, oh, this is because they, you know, listen, the, the, the link between fiber and cancer exists because people who eat more fiber probably also exercise more, probably smoke less, drink less, sleep more. And and yeah. I think that that's, that's cool to understand. And if, listen, if a study does not control for certain confounders, then that is a limitation of that study that needs to be taken into account. But this idea that all of these studies aren't taking into account this stuff, I'm about to review a paper on Instagram that, that just came out, a, like a, a prospective cohort about like women getting more benefit from exercise than men. And they listed the, the things that they controlled for. And it's massive. They controlled for all of these healthy user bias things. BMI, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, medical history, comorbidities, like sleep, like, you know, whatever, climate, like, and so there's this misconception that, 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 that these observational studies yeah. like fiber, you know, you know, people who eat more fiber have less incidence of cancer, like as if that that was the only thing that they were looking at is fiber, cancer, and that they didn't control for any of these other variables. And we can just throw all this stuff away because of healthy user bias. Yeah, that's a great point. First and foremost, like a lot of a lot of these larger scale studies do control for a lot of these variables. Right. And when it comes to something like fiber, like the relationship still stands. Second to that is that the effects of confounding variables in observational research tends to be larger the smaller the sample size is. So like if you have a sample size of 50 people who eat fiber and 50 people who don't, these confounding variables may play a larger role, especially if these individuals come from like a similar ge geographical location, similar background. But when you have large scale observational research, which with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals who consume fiber and who do not consume fiber. And these individuals come from all walks of life, different age ranges, different uh, geographical location, different socioeconomic status. These um, confounding variables, although it can't be proved, I think logically makes sense that they tend to cancel themselves out because you're getting a very heterogeneous population. Confounding variables 
play a bigger role when you have a very homogenous population where like everybody is very similar. But again, to say that fiber consumption is only beneficial because these people do other healthy things, what proof is there to say that these people are, these are the only people doing other healthy things? Again, if you like, for example, with the carnivores, they're doing other healthy things. They're not eating fiber, right? So it's just a straw man argument, man. It's like saying like, oh, this is why. But then people don't think about like, oh, there is no evidence for that thing that you're suggesting. And also, if we're talking about confounding variables, how does that make sense? Because if we have hundreds of thousands of people and they're all coming from different places and they're all very different and there's no homogeneity amongst the population, then that doesn't make sense, right? And again, I don't expect most people to understand that without listening to something like this, but hopefully everybody listens to this <laughs> and understands where we're coming from. Yeah, there's either there's either the element of they did control for these con potential confounding variables or that we have such a heterogeneity that it almost already accounts for that because you're taking people in all different socioeconomic statuses and geographic locations and ages and comorbidities and 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 um and it just I also find it funny that like uh that that on a really large scale would be enough to just completely throw it out like we're talking about like when we talk, when you look at a paper, there's a section usually somewhere with like limitations or like if you read a research review, like limitations, yeah. it's called limitations, not like, like throw the paper out entirely, yes, yes, you know? Yes, and yes. so it's like they, they, these people will throw these papers out entirely instead of being like, Hey, this is a limitation of the paper. And thus it, it, it skews the scale of the totality, the evidence, a certain sure, percentage, sure. like it's, it's not black and white, throw it out. This, this doesn't yeah. matter. Like, um, and so that, that always kills me. Cause I'm like, if, if you have a critique yeah. of a paper, like that's fair. There's of course, you know, critiques and limitations, but like that just, that doesn't, it's a sliding scale. It's not like zero to a hundred. This is a paper that helps, or this is a paper that makes no sense. Or it's like, it's just a, whatever, I guess it's just an, um, a, and I was going to, I was going to add to that. Yeah. It's funny because people disregard the totality of research, right? Like, in most, there are very few areas of research where the totality of the research agrees on a particular outcome. And fiber is one of those. There's really not any strong research to refute the fact that fiber is beneficial for health, right? There are other areas, because usually of confounding variables, that we see different outcomes. And then you have to take a little bit of a deeper dive to understand what's going on. And we can talk about, for example, like, uh, intermittent fasting versus no intermittent fasting. There are some diets that show that intermittent fasting may be, not diets. There are some studies that show that intermittent fasting may be better. You take a little bit of a deep dive. They don't really control for caloric intake or energy expenditure, et cetera. And so there's an explanation to the reason why it doesn't agree with the totality of research. Fiber is not like that. Like literally everything agrees. Fiber is good. Right. And then to take it a step further, because we're talking about like, do studies look at confounding variables? If we look at some of these very well-designed studies, even though they're observational, that are published in really reputable journals with a really large sample size, they'll usually uh, show the data using uh, two or three different models, right? And what are models? So uh, for those of you guys listening, when you collect data, let's say we're going to look at the relationship between fiber and cardiovascular outcomes. It's usually questionnaire based or they do a dietary recall to know how much fiber these people are taking. When it's hundreds of thousands of people, they usually take this data from a database like the NHANES database, right? And you collect this data and then you look at outcomes for a certain period of time. And then to assess the relationship, you have to do 
statistical analysis. And these statistical analysis aggregate the data and look for relationships within the data. And you can design these statistical analyses slightly differently. And this is what we call different statistical models, right? So they'll usually run an overall uh, model without any confounding variables, right? To see if there's any relationship between the variables. And let's say they find some relationship between fiber and health-related outcomes. That's not where the research ends, right? They take it a step further and they're like, okay, we found this relationship. Now let's see if we find this relationship while controlling for things like uh, lifestyle factors, maybe smoking and sleep and all of this stuff. Okay, now let's take it a step further and see if there's a difference between uh, controlling this between men and women, between different age ranges, right? So there's a lot of work being done. And to simply say that confounding variables are not taken into account at all is just not true. And it's so funny, man, because some of these people, like, I don't go and look at every single study they they bring up. But when somebody like Sean Baker makes a big claim about something related to fiber, like, uh, I can't remember the study off the top of my head, but it was this specific example where like, they didn't control for anything. And it was a study of this many thousand people. And when I hear that, I'm like, wait, those two things do not line up. A researcher wouldn't go through the the trouble of assessing data in thousands of individuals and then not control for certain variables that are obvious. And they're silly enough to cite the research. And then I just go home and like look at the research like, oh, like he just lied. They did control for those variables. It's crazy, man, because nobody takes that extra step to actually look into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, uh, what, what's your what's your time check here? A couple of minutes, man. Okay. We can chat for a little let's bit. Do, let's do, let's uh, so do, let's close it down. <laughs> let's close it down. I think it's mega yeah. beneficial. We've, we've absolutely killed it. I think, I think just like very, 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 very helpful. Let's, let's just do a quick, while we're on the fiber conversation of sure. what the research says and is, is just look at why fiber might be helpful and beneficial and maybe some sure. just brief recommendations on fiber before we go. And so let's look at like, all right, so we see all this observational data. Fiber is good. You know, there's like some studies about like, that the all-cause mortality goes down like like linearly, like with with fiber intake. Like we have all this cool study on fiber, but mechanistically, like what do we think is happening here when people eat fiber? Why why on a mechanistic level is fiber beneficial? Yeah, yeah uh, there are three main mechanisms here. Uh, we can talk about cholesterol lowering effects, right? So when we consume more fiber, we excrete more bile through our feces, right? Bile is the substance that we release into our digestive system that helps with the digestion of dietary fats specifically. There's a lot of cholesterol in our bile. We can recycle bile so we can reuse it. And when we consume more fiber, we recycle less bile. So we excrete more cholesterol. So that's one of the main mechanisms by which um, fiber can help reduce overall cholesterol. And as a byproduct, reduce LDL cholesterol, which we talked about, can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's one mechanism. Second mechanism is fiber tends to slow down transit time in the digestive system. And fiber has direct effects on hunger and satiety regulation. So we know that fiber increases the concentration of of certain hormones like GLP-1, right? Which is a hunger, uh, the opposite. It's a satiety signaling um, hormone, right? So it has effects on these different molecules that tell our brain whether we're full or hungry. And fiber tends to increase the ones that help us feel like we're full. It also slows down the digestion and absorption of food in our digestive tract. It adds um, essentially bulk to the food going through the digestive system. So it slows it down, which also helps us feel fuller. It can help prevent 
the rate of nutrient absorption, specifically carbohydrates. So it prevents glucose spikes, even though I'm always a little bit fuzzy when I talk about this one, because there's not a ton of data showing that like spiking your sugar is necessarily a bad thing in terms of contributing to insulin resistance. But we know that fiber consumption is associated with better insulin sensitivity. I really think that the main mechanism there is really just through controlling food intake in general, right? Because Again, I'm not going to sit here and say spiking your blood sugar is bad for blood sugar regulation if caloric intake is equated for because it, it doesn't seem to be. And then the third mechanism is through effects on the gut microbiome, which are a little less understood. But we do know that fiber consumption tends to promote the growth of, of healthy or health promoting bacterial colonies in our intestines, right? Like I'm not well versed in the gut microbiome research from my understanding, uh, it's still an emerging space of research. And what we do know is that there are certain relationships between certain families of bacteria and certain health-related outcomes. And fiber seems to promote the growth of the microbes that seem to be related with positive health outcomes. We also know that fiber consumption increases the production of what are called short-chain fatty acids from the microbes in our guts. And short-chain fatty acids are things like butyrates. Um, they're just like these short chain fatty acids, as the name <laughs> implies, that tend to have positive health outcomes as well. Those are some of the main mechanisms why. Um, but again, I I, I want to emphasize this because people get so hyper fixated on the mechanism as well. Like the outcome is super important and there's no denying that higher fiber consumption is associated with positive health, health outcomes. And to touch a little bit on this, because we were talking about earlier people with digestive symptoms, if you have issues with fiber for individuals who have issues with fiber, the main recommendation is to find uh, an upper limit of fiber that's tolerable and try to consume that, right? Because you also don't want to be living with like bloating and being super uncomfortable. It's just not good, right? It's going to exacerbate the symptoms. That's like, it's the same thing as saying like somebody who has a peanut allergy, just saying that peanuts are bad for you. It's not that peanuts are bad for you. So that that person has an allergy to that specific food. It's very unfortunate that these things happen. And for individuals who have um, issues with some plant-based foods, hear me out. Don't just completely eliminate them. If you don't know what's bothering you, completely eliminate them for a short period of time. So like Jordan, you were saying like an elimination diet can help people uh, figure out what's going on. That's true. But then you slowly reintroduce it one food at a time. One food at a time is the key word there. So you eliminate all of them. You introduce it for a week or two, see if symptoms come back. If they don't, you're good with that food. If some foods cause some slight discomfort, try cooking them, right? So like cruciferous veggies in general tend to be like a big group of, uh, of like uh, veggies that people have some issues with, things like broccoli and Brussels sprouts. Like if you're eating them raw, it can exacerbate the symptoms. If you really enjoy those foods, just cook them down as much as possible uh, like sauteing it, sauteing it for 30 seconds is not the same thing as like boiling it or roasting it for 30 minutes. You're going to break it down much more. It's probably not going to be as bad for your digestive system. So if you do have sensitivities, cook the food, eliminate things, see what happens, but then try to find the upper end of what's tolerable for you. Because again, consuming fibers definitely going to have positive impacts on health. Cool, man. Super duper helpful. I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. You crushed it. Let people know where they can find you uh, and your, you know, I don't know if you're busy counting money from big fiber or, you know, big, big LDL or whatever. But, um, you know, if you have time, maybe you'll, you know, respond on social media Dude, or something. The funniest thing, uh, 
I made that video about blending fruits, how like it's not bad for you. And somebody comments, it was definitely a joke, but they were like, you're bought off by Big Blender. I'm like, this is the funniest, Big Ninja. <laughs> the funniest <laughs> comment I've read in a long time. It's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But dude, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's always a blast chatting with you. For those of you guys listening, if you want to follow me just at Dr. Joey Munoz, that's D-R dot J-O-E-Y-M-U-N-O-Z. Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.